Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 1 this morning. Exodus chapter 1. And uh, we are in the beginning of a, of a brand new series. So we're in a series now that will take us through the end of the summer called Call and Response. We'll be looking at the first 15 chapters of Exodus and moving through quickly. In fact, this morning we're going we're gonna to try and make our way through all of chapter 1. So you'll forgive me if I move a little bit quickly. But the purpose, in this, uh, the purpose in this study is to pay attention to a couple of different things as revealed in the first 15 chapters of Exodus. So what we see in Exodus is a, is a great opportunity both to capture the ways in which God calls his people and they respond, and then we also have the opportunity to see the way that God's people call out to him and he responds. And that dialogue, the response that's created in each party, in addition to the ways in which sometimes, as we'll see this morning, people who don't know God sort of call him out and he responds nonetheless, uh, is going to be very interesting for us as we try and figure out where our place is in the culture we live. Obviously, the people of Israel we see in Exodus chapter 1 are in the midst of a culture that neither appreciates them or is happy that they're there or cares anything about their God. And yet they remain a, a people that God uses to create great influence. Um, and so they've got to sort of figure out how to navigate that. In many ways, we today have the same task ahead of us. To figure out how we listen to the call of God and respond. The ways we call out to him in the midst of a culture that doesn't necessarily care about the God we serve. So Exodus chapter 1 is where we are. And we're going to read the whole chapter. Now let me say this. I'm going to invite you to do something with me this morning. I know you've done it in the past, but I want to, I want to give you a little explanation. I'm going to invite you in just a second to stand to your feet as we read God's word. Now, I want to be really clear about this. This isn't the only way to read God's word. It's not the right way to read God's word. But there is a great legacy and a history in the scriptures of God's people standing when his word is open, when the scrolls are unrolled, as a way to honor and revere the word of God. And so one of the things I'm going to be inviting you to do is to stand, but we want to be careful in that, that it doesn't become a like, you know, like a thing like, this is the way good Christians read God's word. We don't want to go that far. If you don't want to stand, if you're not able to stand, you are absolutely welcome to sit down. But as we read God's word together, I invite you, if you're able, to stand to your feet in honor of God's word right now. Exodus chapter 1 says this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, 
she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Would you pray with me as we begin? God, we thank you for your word. We always want to be reverent and respectful, appreciative of the fact that even the ability to hold your word in our hands, to read it with our eyes, to understand it with our hearts, all of those things are a gift from you. We thank you that you've spoken to us through your word. And we pray, God, that you would continue to speak to us through your word this morning, that your spirit would move in this place, that our hearts would be fertile soil to receive the seed of your word, and that you would produce glory in our lives. God, that glory might come in the form of conviction. It might come in the form of, of celebration. It might come in the form of a greater understanding of who you are or who you've created us to be. But above all, we pray that you would be worshipped this morning as you speak to us, as you call us, and we respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you. You can have a seat. I know that's a, uh, a long text to read, but I think it's important as we begin the series to sort of understand what's being set up. And it's important right out of the gate to even understand the way the first seven verses here are put together and why. The book of Exodus begins with a genealogy. And it begins with the genealogy uh, here of this, or at least a record of the sons of Jacob because Moses, the writer of Exodus, is trying to make a couple things clear to us. The first thing he's trying to make clear is that this isn't meant to be a standalone story. Exodus is not meant to be a new story with characters you've never heard of before and events occurring that won't be familiar to you. As he's writing Exodus, he's writing Exodus as a continuation of the story he's already been telling. The story of God and the people of God that he began in the book of Genesis. Genesis's overarching theme was creation. The overarching theme of Exodus will be redemption. Redemption of God's people, redemption of his plan and his purposes. And so as he begins the book, he wants us to know, hey, you're going to recognize some of these characters. You're going to recognize some of these names. Now, if you haven't read Genesis recently, some of this might not be familiar to you. So let me just give you a sense of what it is he's showing us. He tells us the sons of Jacob are in Egypt. And if you read the end of the book of Genesis, you would know, and you may remember it from when you were a kid or when you read it last, that Jacob and his sons go to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. You remember the story of Joseph, or you might have seen the Veggie Tales or whatever. Uh, Joseph is sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and he ends up being a powerful ruler there. Because of his wisdom, the wisdom that God gives to him, he's able to create a plan that then preserves the lives of the people in the land in the midst of famine. And his father, Joseph's father, Jacob, and all of Joseph's brothers who are listed here at the beginning of Exodus, they go, his brothers go to Egypt to get food because they're hungry. And if you remember the story, when they get to Egypt, Joseph recognizes them, he plays a couple of games with them, but ultimately there is reconciliation, and he invites them to bring their father, Jacob, back to Egypt with all of his household. But Jacob is hesitant to do that, and there's a reason that Jacob is hesitant. You see, Jacob's grandfather was a guy named Abram, 
God had called Abram, and as God was calling Abram, there was a famine in the land during that time, and Abram, in his own power, and in his own strength, and his own wisdom, made an arbitrary decision to go to Egypt, and all kinds of trouble ensued. You may remember that when Abram got to Egypt, he pretended that his wife was his sister, and the Pharaoh fell in love with her, and there was all kinds of drama. Ultimately, Abram is forcibly expelled from Egypt, right? Generation later, Isaac, Jacob's father, Abram's son, wants to go to Egypt in the midst of a famine, and God says, don't you do it. In fact, God forbids Isaac to go to Egypt. He says, stay in the place where I put you. Don't be running to Egypt. Stay there, God tells Isaac. So when Joseph looks at his father, Jacob, I know it's a lot of names, when Joseph looks at Jacob and says, come to Egypt, I'll create a great place for you. I've got all kinds of wealth and all kinds of power. This can be a good place for our family. Jacob is understandably reluctant to do that. He wants to see Joseph, but he doesn't want to be outside of God's purpose and God's plan for him. And so we see in Genesis 46 that God comes to Jacob in a dream. And he says to Jacob in verse 2, this is Genesis 46, 2, God spoke to Israel, that's Jacob, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. Moses, another name, who's writing Exodus, wants us all to see that the people are in Exodus now because they obeyed the call of God. Because God came to Jacob and said, go to Egypt, don't be afraid, I want you there, I'm going to lead you in and I'm going to lead you out. And so now as we get into the story of Exodus, and the people are in all kinds of trouble, and they're oppressed, and they're, they're the victims of racism, and brutality, and ruthlessness, Moses wants us to understand that these people are in the spot they're in, not because they've broken God's law or because they've been disobedient, but precisely the opposite. They're in the difficult circumstance they're in because they did what God told them to do. And that sort of goes against our common understanding of the way it works to follow God, right? There are a lot of people who are following God. In fact, you may have even come to church this morning with the intention of following God so that everything would be great in your life, right? That God would give you some instruction and you would obey it and everything would be sunshine and rainbows and it would just be happy times and people, you know, feeding you grapes and fanning you with palm fronds, you know, I don't know. Doves landing on your shoulder or whatever. We get all kinds of wrong perceptions and sometimes that even happens from the church. Sometimes churches will look at a crowd like this and they'll say, hey, if you wanna be happy and you wanna be peaceful and you want everything to go good in your life, then follow Jesus. But that isn't what Jesus says about following Jesus. And you and I have to be very careful because if you follow Jesus with the false presumption that it will always be easy and it will always be good and it will always be comfortable, you'll quit following Jesus pretty quick. Jesus himself in Matthew 10 says, all men will hate you because of me. They're gonna drag you in front of their magistrates and they'll flog you publicly and kids are gonna try and kill their parents and parents are gonna try and kill their kids. It's not easy. He says, if they call, this is Jesus, he says, if they call me Beelzebub, don't be surprised if they call you all kinds of things too if you're my followers. The people of Israel, Jacob's descendants, these sons that are listed for us in Exodus chapter one are in the spot they're in because they did the thing God told them to do. And that's just how it goes sometimes. Sometimes God calls us in and as a part of his plan there is difficulty and we don't necessarily see it when we start that obedience, right? 
It's funny, this season for my family has been really interesting because we've been in a process, as you know, uh, although some of you may have been out of town for the last couple of months, um, we've been in the process of figuring out whether God was calling us to come to Evie Free Fullerton, right? And we've been praying and we've been seeking God and he's been so gracious and so faithful and we've seen God's fingerprints all over this thing to where a couple of weeks ago when there was an affirming vote by the congregation that we should come and serve in this place among you, we feel absolutely confident that that's of God, right? We're excited to be here. But then I start my first week of work, right? Monday was my first day of work, and they, they send me an email and they say, hey, on Wednesday, we need to have a quick meeting uh, with you. It's a security meeting. And so I go to the security meeting, and then they spend like an hour telling me about all the ways that now that I've decided to be the senior pastor here, that people are gonna try and do me harm, right? I sat through a meeting where they outlined all these ways people now want to hurt me because I'm here. And it's important that they didn't give me that meeting before I took the job. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) They did that on purpose. They waited until I signed on the thing and they're like, well, you should know. Some people want to hurt you now, right? Now, I will say, all joking aside, the security team is so awesome around here. and, And the people that have put that all together are doing so in a way that's very faithful to God. But it's interesting that in following God's plan, it didn't occur to me at the time that I would be (laughs) putting a little bit of a target on myself, right? God's people are in, they're in Egypt, and they're able to be oppressed by the Pharaoh because they obeyed God. And that's the way it works. But we need to remember, and we need to understand that the God who gets them into this is also the God that will get them out. And the same is true for you and I. When God promises to Abram, to make his nation great, to make his name great, to multiply him greatly. All the things we see coming to pass in this first section, God says the very same thing. This is Genesis 15, 13. It says, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. See, God had told Abram way back, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna multiply you. I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. Your friends will be my friends and your enemies will be my enemies. But there is a day coming, God said to Abram, where I'm gonna lead you as sojourners into a land where you'll be strangers and you'll be there under oppression for 400 years. And I'm gonna lead you there and I'm gonna lead you out. Moses, the author of Exodus, wants us to know that these are people that from the get-go have responded to the call of God to the purpose of God, and to the plan of God. And can I tell you this morning that in your life, when you find yourselves in the midst of tribulation, when you find yourself in the midst of hardship, when you find yourself in the midst of difficulty, the question you want to ask first is, am I in this situation because I've been obedient to God, or am I in this situation because I've been following my own path? Because that makes all the difference in the world. If you're in the situation that you're in because you've been obedient to God, then guess what? He got you into it, And by his grace and by his power and according to his great mercy, he will lead you out in his timing and according to his purposes. God has a plan that he's enacting. And so when we see the sons of Jacob and we see them rooted in Egypt and they've grown and multiplied, what we're seeing is the result of God's promise. We're seeing God's promise fulfilled. Back to Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons, and look at what it says in verse six. Joseph died, all his brothers in that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Listen, all that is, is exactly what God said would happen. That is the fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan. And it's the fulfillment of God's plan then that gets them into greater trouble. Because what we see next 
is Pharaoh's response to the blessing of God. Don't miss it. This isn't just Pharaoh frustrated with the Israelites. It's not just Pharaoh trying to protect his own land and his own site. Ultimately, what Pharaoh's frustrated about, what the king of Egypt is frustrated about, is the fulfillment of God's promise to God's people. Let's read it together. This is Exodus 1.8. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Side note, why are they too many and too mighty? Because of the fulfillment of the promise of God. He said, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, pit them in Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Listen, Israel's growth is a direct result of God's fulfillment of his promise, and it is also the exact reason why they're oppressed. Pharaoh puts into play a four-stage plan. I don't know that it was initially a four-stage plan. Like, I don't think that's the way he sort of thought it was going to happen. But the way this works is he goes, wow, the Israelites have grown really strong and they've multiplied. We've got to do something about this. We've got to do something about this because these people, they could overthrow us. They could rise up against us. They could become our enemies. And so we have to crush them. So let's enslave them. So they enslave the people. But it says in the text that when they're enslaved, what happens? They grow all the more, Right? If you didn't know the story and somebody was saying, oh, you know, the Israelites were oppressed in Egypt, you might think, well, they were being enslaved and they were being oppressed because they were so big. But it's the other way around. Because they were oppressed, they grew. Every time they were increasingly oppressed, they grew all the more. It's contrary to the thinking, right? Pharaoh says, let's enslave them, and they do, and that doesn't work. They grow. So they enslave them ruthlessly and bitterly. All of the people of Egypt are in dread of the people of Israel and they grow all the more. So that's stage two. Stage three, Pharaoh enacts a secret plan and he calls these midwives aside and he says, hey, when you're working with the Israelite women, if they have a male baby, kill it. And if they have a female baby, it can live. And that doesn't work. And the people continue to grow. And so we see the end of this chapter, the fourth stage of his plan, where he basically makes a declaration to all the people of Egypt and says, if the Hebrews have a male baby, you kill it and toss it into the Nile. There's an escalation of Pharaoh's plan, but don't misunderstand here. What Pharaoh is doing is not just setting himself against the people of God. He's calling out God himself. Because the thing he's frustrated about and the thing that's making him so anxious and angry and racist and bitter and brutal is not that there are some people on his property. It's that God is blessing them. I read an interesting quote this week. Dennis, excuse me, Douglas Stewart says, the blessings of God are often in conflict with the prevailing corrupt values of a worldly culture. The blessings of God are often in conflict with the prevailing corrupt values of a worldly culture so that they become a threat to those who are not aligned with God's will. Think about that. That in a culture that values certain things, if those values don't align with God, then when God blesses, those blessings become a threat 
to the culture that doesn't value the same thing. That's what's happening here. And Pharaoh might think that he's just oppressing a group of people, but because they're God's people and because his oppression is in response to the fulfillment of God's promise, what Pharaoh has essentially done, and this is the call and response in our message this morning, what Pharaoh has essentially done is he hasn't just called out these people. He's called out God himself. He'll realize that later. He doesn't realize it yet. He'll realize it later because when he resists and resents the people of God, he rejects God himself. When he resists and resents the people of God and the the promise of God, he rejects God himself. It's just like what happens with Jesus, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that the blessing of God is rejected? You would think that the Egyptians would go, this is so cool, we've got all these Israelites here with us and you know what? Their God is blessing them and everything they touch grows and all of their crops are fruitful and they're just great people that God has blessed and we're so lucky to have them. Let's take good care of the Israelites. But that's not the way it goes. Jesus comes to the earth in the incarnation. Why? Because mankind was lost and broken. We were dead in our sin, separated from God. And God in his great mercy and love, he sends the Lord Jesus to the world, right? John 1 says, light came into the world. And it was our life. And John 3 says, this is the verdict, that light came into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. How cool would it have been if the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, had come into the earth and people had been like, yes, this is what we needed. We are in darkness. We are lost and dead. We need rescue. But instead they went, uh, this guy's values and this guy's plans go against all the things we've set up. Why were the religious leaders opposed to Jesus? Why were the people of the day opposed to Jesus? Why did they want him dead? Because he upended their value system. He upended their value system. You see, it's also true, and we see it in the text, that those who consider themselves rightful citizens... Those who consider themselves rightful citizens, which Pharaoh and the Egyptian people did, those who consider themselves rightful citizens will always be threatened by people who they consider to be outsiders. Those who consider themselves the ones who deserve to be there or belong to be there will always be threatened by people they consider to be undeserving or to be outsiders. Every oppressive regime has used the threat of great danger, real or imagined, to justify hatred, selfishness, racism, and brutality over the years. Always. There is this increased fear of we gotta hold on to what belongs to us. We gotta cling to this. Here are the people of God, and they're so fruitful, and they're multiplying, and we gotta squish them. Because we wanna hold on to our way of doing things. And so Pharaoh calls out God. He calls out God because he wants to get rid of the outsiders. And throughout history, mankind has fallen into the temptation of trying to hold on to what they want and their values and their stuff and as a result have been tempted to use brutality and racism and hatred and segregation as ways to push people away that would threaten what they want to hold on to themselves. It's funny, I was was the, the director of the Joshua Institute up at Hume Lake and I was there during the time that they actually built the Joshua Lodge, which is a building that's set aside just for the Joshua program to take place. If you're ever up at Hume Lake, go and look at the Joshua Institute building. It's really beautiful. But I was actually the director of Joshua when that building was built. And so I was the first director to be there when we were moving all the furniture in and whatever. And there was a day where um, I was building all my office furniture, right? I I bought it like a desk and a little side table and some chairs. And 
I've got these pictures, but the pictures are all in Swedish, and so I'm trying to figure out how to use the Allen wrench, you know, and I, I don't have any idea what the instructions are trying to tell me. So I'm working really hard in my office on, the, on my desk trying to build it, and I notice some movement out of the corner of my eye. And uh, I see this cute little, there's just this cute little baby mouse that's walked into my office and he's just sitting there on the carpet. He's got like a little, like an acorn or something. He's just eating it and he's just watching me build the desk. And I'm like, hey there, little fella. What are you doing in here? You like this new building, don't you? Well, you know what? You just watch me build my desk. So I'm building the desk for a little while and I keep seeing the mouse and he doesn't move. He's just watching me. He's just sitting there, you know? So after a little while, I'm like, you probably, it's probably time for you to like, skedaddle, you know, like you got, it's time to get out of here, little mouse, so I, I, I kind of walk over to him, I'm thinking I'm going to shoo him out, and he just sits there and looks at me, you know, so then I think, this is a mental mouse, right, this mouse has like a problem, there's something, like it's got rabies or something, it's going to try and attack me, so then I get nervous, so then I'm, wa- I'm trying to build the desk, but I'm watching this little mouse, and he's just really friendly, and I'm like, dude, you've got to get out of here, like you can't stay here, you've got to go, you know, you can't, you can't be here anymore, you got to go, 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 and he just, he won't, he just stays there. So the contractor who was building the building was still there, and I, so I went to him, and I said, hey, something kind of weird's happening, I'm trying to build my desk, but this sweet little baby mouse came into my office, and he's sitting there, and he's, and he's watching me while I build the desk, and I'm trying to get him to go, but he won't go, and I'm not really sure what to do, uh, can you help me? And Brian goes, yeah, no problem, show me where. And so he, he follows me to my office and the mouse had moved like a little and so I was like, well, it was there. Oh, there he is. And the little mouse is just like this. And Brian pulls his hammer off the loop on his belt and he hits the mouse and kills it. And I'm like, I, I couldn't even make the noise. It was like this absolute like, ah, silent scream. I was destroyed. There's like a, ah, the cute little baby mouse is pulverized, you know? And I'm like, I just wanted you to like, help me take it outside. <laughs> and he goes, nope. He goes, this building belongs to humans and we can't let those mice get any ideas. <laughs> I was actually nervous he was gonna take the little head and put it on a spike, you know, put it out in front of the thing <laughs> as like a warning to other mice. <laughs> I was so sad. Now, when you hear that story, it's a disturbing story. I, under- I was there, trust me, I know, but... You can kind of make a separation because you go, well, yeah, but mice are pests and they're different and they're whatever. Listen, when we're talking about human beings and we start to think of ourselves as the rightful owners of a place or some stuff or whatever, and we start to think of other people as outsiders, people who are less deserving, we've missed the fact that the rightful citizens of this planet are the men and women that God created in his image that he calls his sons and daughters, And it doesn't matter what their skin looks like and it doesn't matter where they come from. They all are known and loved by God. And we have to be very careful we don't fall into the same trap. Because when Pharaoh calls God out, there are a series of responses. I want us to see them in the time we have left. The first response I want you to see is the response of the Egyptians. In response to the call out of Pharaoh, the response of the Egyptians is racism and brutality and hatred, and murder, and it's all because somebody got up and said, there's a potential threat. And so the Egyptians follow along. It's why later in the scriptures we'll see God very clearly say to his people, in Leviticus 19.33, he says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The people just go along. They just follow along. You and I have to be very careful that we pay attention, 
that we pay attention in the world in which we live. Both in our homes and in our jobs and in our country and in the world, we have to be paying attention to the places where we're just following along, where we just get caught in a routine. The people of Egypt, they just conform to what he puts out there. Fear and dread, ruthlessness, racism, cruelty, and murder. But there is another response. You see, we also see in this text the response of God's people. The response of God's people. And that's what we see in the last third of this chapter. In the last third of this chapter, we see the response of God's people, namely through these two midwives. And the way it's written, it could be interpreted uh, midwives to the Hebrews or Hebrew midwives. So there's lots of debate. I don't want to get into an argument with you today about whether these were Hebrew women or Egyptian women. Uh, Some people on one side of that debate will go, well, these are Semitic names. These are Hebrew names. Shifra and Pua, those are Hebrew names, so they must be Hebrews. There are other people that make great arguments on the other side. To be honest with you, I don't know that it really matters whether they're Hebrew women or whether they're Egyptian women. And people will go, wait, wait, wait. It doesn't make any sense that there would be two midwives for all these people because we know when the people go out of Egypt, there's 650,000 fighting men, right? So there's millions of people. How could two midwives do this? Well, the likelihood is that these two women were just representatives. They were just leaders in that area. But Pharaoh calls the men and he says, hey, when you're uh, helping out the, the Hebrew women who are having their babies, if it's a male child, kill it. If it's a female child, don't. And look at what it says in 17. This is Exodus chapter one, verse 17. It says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. Proverbs nine ten says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You see these women, their response to the call out of Pharaoh, their response to the call out of Pharaoh was, what do you want to call it? Should we call it heroic activism? Shall we call it civil disobedience? You can call it what you want to call it. I don't care what you call it, but here's what they did. They went, you know what? There are times where we're going to be able to comply and there are times where we're called to comply. But there are also times where the edict of man is neutralized and discounted by the command of God. They feared God rather than Pharaoh. They did what was difficult instead of what was easy. They likely had heard or understood what God had said earlier in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. We're not supposed to be killing people, right? And so these midwives, they don't do it. And they had a little bit of room. There's a little bit of time before Pharaoh calls them back in. He calls them back in and he goes, hey, I can see all these male children running around, right? You're not doing what I told you to do. And that that would have been a little bit of a window because the male and female children during that time period would have looked very similar all the way through infancy and like almost all the way to adolescence, right? So there are some years here. And then Pharaoh starts to look around and go, wait a second, I'm seeing a bunch of male Hebrew kids around. So he calls Shifra and Pua back in, and he says, what, what's the deal here? You didn't do the thing I told you. Now, I'll tell you, I gotta be honest with you, I'd love this story even more if they were just like, we fear God rather than man, stick it, Pharaoh. You know, that would've been cool, right? <laughs> they probably would've got killed, but I would, that would be a, a cool way for the story to go. And because they didn't answer that way, there is also some debate in this text among theologians and Christians historically about whether or not Shifra and Pua lie to Pharaoh. They look at him and they say, well, the Hebrew women are more vigorous than the Egyptian women, and they just, their babies are born before the midwives can get there. And people have said, they lie to Pharaoh. It's kind of why we laughed when I read it. 
They lie to Pharaoh. So what is this? Is this God blessing them? Because in the next section, it says that God blesses them and gives them families. The concept or the thought there is that some of these midwives would have been in the role they were in because they did not have children of their own, and so they were able to be available to be midwives to other women. So for God to bless them with families was a huge thing indeed. And people will look at it and go, God blesses them, but they're liars. What does that say about God? Well, listen, first of all, God is never going to call us to do things that contradict his nature and his character in the service of his nature and his character. Right? So we can absolutely, with total assurance, say God didn't bless them for being liars if that's what they're doing. If anything, if they're lying, and I'm not saying they are, I actually don't believe they are, and I'll explain that in a second, but if they were lying, what we would see there is God blessing them for their faithfulness and their protection of the sanctity of life, as opposed to blessing them for the lie that they, some people will argue that they told. I will say this, I don't actually think this is a lie. I think there's a couple things at play here. The word that's translated vigorous in this text could also be translated more active or almost like animal-like, right? And and so some translations will even translate that word vigorous to the word beastly. I'm glad it doesn't say that here. But some of what these midwives may be saying is the way Egyptian women give birth and the way Hebrew women give birth is different. Egyptian women, they sort of, they do it in private and it's sort of a quiet thing and you know, it's, it's a sort of easy to sort of contain. But the Hebrew women, it's a very active thing. It's a much more active thing and probably a much more social thing and a much harder place than to go in and secretly kill the new baby, right? I think it's also possible that in addition to saying Hebrew women do it differently and Pharaoh wouldn't have known any different, But in addition to saying Hebrew women do it differently, they also could have gone to the Hebrew community and said, hey, just so you know, when you start to have your baby, hustle. We're gonna stop at Starbucks and uh, we're gonna get there. Don't be freaked out, but it's actually better for everybody if you just sort of get that business done and we'll come at the end and sign the paperwork, right? They could have orchestrated this in such a way that they're able to be honest and truthful in it and at the same time non-compliant. Does that make sense? I see room for that here. So we see the response of the Egyptians is to go along with the brutality and the hatred and the racism and the murder. We see the response of God's people is to fear him more than man. It reminds me of what Peter says to the council in Acts when they say, we told you not to preach about Jesus and we hear you're still preaching about Jesus. And he goes, I gotta obey God rather than men. That's a, great, that's a great reminder for us. God rather than men. God's people in this text certainly see that. The last thing I want you to see, the last response I want you to see this morning is God's response. We see the Egyptians' response. We see God's people's response to the call of Pharaoh. What's God's response? Well, it's interesting. In this chapter, I want you to notice Pharaoh talks a lot, right? He talks a lot in this text. You know who doesn't talk at all? God. And you know why I don't, uh, why I think we don't hear him super vocal in Exodus chapter one? Because he doesn't have anything new to say. He's already said to Abram, I'll be your God and you will be my people and I will bless you and multiply you and you will be a great nation. You won't be able to count your descendants. Everywhere you go, you'll be fruitful. He's already said it. There's nothing else to say. What is God's response to Pharaoh's call? He just continues to faithfully be who he is. He continues to faithfully fulfill his promises. And there's great hope for us in that, isn't there? Because there are circumstances and situations in your life where you feel like, what is God doing and where is he? And I don't know how to get his attention. Listen, you don't have to because he is faithful. He is the one that upholds the covenant, not Moses, not Abram. 
God does that. And so his response to Pharaoh's call is just to continue to be God, to continue to fill his promises. He blesses these midwives with families, so he's blessing their faithfulness. And not only that, he redeems even the pain they're in. Here's what I mean by that. We might look at it and go, why doesn't he get them out of the slavery? And eventually he will. But there's a long time, 400 years, where they're enslaved here, right? Why doesn't he get them out of that? Well, you know, it's possible for God to utilize even the painful circumstances in our lives for his glory. Are you okay with that? You see, the pain and the difficulty therein, it does a couple of things. One thing, it absolutely secures their identity as God's people. There is no question about whether or not they're blending in with the Egyptian culture because they've been rejected by the Egyptian culture, right? So their identity as God's people is secured in some ways through the pain. But it's also true that the pain and the difficulty therein, it drives them to call out for rescue in a way they may not otherwise have done. Sometimes when you and I are in the midst of pain, we go, what did I do? What did I do wrong here? What mistake did I make? And sometimes we're in difficult circumstances because we blew it. But sometimes we're in the midst of difficult circumstances because we live in a broken world and God allows that pain to continue. Why? Because it drives us to our knees. Because it reminds us how dependent we are on his rescue. The people of Israel absolutely know in the midst of this difficult season how dependent they are. Listen, Pharaoh's plan was slavery and death. Not coincidentally, the purposes of our enemy, Satan, and the result of sin in our lives, slavery and death. And God will have none of it. God's not having either. He's not gonna allow the call out of Pharaoh to dissuade him in his purposes in any way. He's going to fulfill his promise. And he is not going to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. The Lord Jesus comes to the earth to rescue us. And we'll see that in increasing measure in the days ahead. But for us, the question becomes, how do we respond? How do we respond in a culture that doesn't necessarily know our God or care? How do we respond in a culture that is frequently flying in the face of God's command and is calling him out? They may not know it, but they're actually spitting in the face of God. How do we respond? Do we just go along like the Egyptians? Or do we remain faithful? Fear God and remain faithful. Do we trust in the fact that God will be who he is? And we don't need to worry about that. I love Romans 12, 12, and I'll finish with this. In the midst of a, of a passage that talks a lot about marks of true Christians, Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. How can you be those things? Because you can be confident that the God who brings you in is also the God who will bring you out. And as long as you're on the path that he's set for you, then you can trust and have hope and be patient and prayerful going forward. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? In the quietness of this moment, I would just want to encourage you to figure out what your response is even to the word of God presented this morning. We never want to walk away from God's word simply having understood the content. We always want to ask the spirit of God, what about me? Where do I go from here? For some of you this morning, it may be falling to your knees and crying out for rescue. 
For some of you, it may be a repentance from going along with a culture whose values are counter to the values of the Lord Jesus. For some of you, you may still be ensnared in sin and death. And can I tell you, Jesus came and died for you because he loves you, and you can be set free from sin and death this morning. By the shed blood of Christ on your behalf, you can be reconciled to God. And so however this message hits you this morning, would you respond where you are? Respond to the call of God. You know, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, I would love to have a conversation with you about what that means to be delivered from sin and death. That can happen after our service. Happen down here in the front with me. It can happen out with our Believe team that's right outside here under the umbrellas. But will you respond to the call of God today? Let me pray for you. God, I pray that you would stir us, that we would that we would have a reverence and a fear of you that outweighs our fear of men. That we would trust in the truth of who you are and be obedient to the call you've placed in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.